Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this episode, I will be reviewing Cat's Eye. Um, it, it, there's really no reason why I am reviewing Cat's Eye this week, other than I never got around to it the, the first time. And it includes... Um, the, the, the adaptation of the, the short story, the, the Ledge, which I wanted to review as, technically speaking, I am still working my way through my reread of all things having to do with, with Night Shift. So over the last couple of weeks, I have had a couple interviews, I have done the review for The Dark Tower, but my focus really uh, has been on, on kind of sticking with everything related to to night shift, so that that brings us to to Cat's Eye. So I'm I'm excited and and Quitters Inc. as well. So I'm excited to talk about Cat's Eye. But before I get any further, I just need to acknowledge some some sad news. I woke up this morning. I checked Twitter, and the first thing that I saw, um, I mean, the sad news is not the fact that I, I wake up in the morning and immediately check Twitter. That is definitely sad. But um, but unfortunately, when I did check Twitter, I saw that. Toby Hooper had passed away last night. Now, for those of you who don't know, Toby Hooper is a legendary horror director, most famously his uh, contribution to not just the horror genre, but to cinema, of course, was uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is still a high bar in terms of what what the, the horror genre is capable of, and it still stands the test of time. It is still a deeply unsettling and uh, thoroughly creepy and off-putting uh, piece of art that, uh, you know, despite the fact that it, it's called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, really no gore. It's, it's all about the atmosphere, and it is still, to this day, unparalleled. But because this is the Stephen King cast, uh, it, it would be remiss of me not to speak of, of Toby Hooper's contribution to the, the adaptations of Stephen King. When Stephen King was still making a name for himself, Toby Hooper was among the first people to adapt his works. Uh, of course, the, the work that I speak of is Salem's Lot, the, the, the TV miniseries back in the day. Now, you can find all of my, my um, thoughts on that adaptation. Uh, there are definitely some I believe that there are some uh, low moments of the adaptation, but uh, the, the high bar of the, the Salem's Lot adaptation still remains one of the, the scariest and most effective horrific moments ever to grace any screen whatsoever, and that, of course, is the vampire at, at the window. That is pure genius, um, and so I am grateful that, that Toby Hooper had tackled the Salem's Lot adaptation. So, yeah, that's not necessarily how I wanted to, to start off the, the episode, but I, I needed to address the, the passing of a legendary director um, who, who follows, unfortunately, uh, George Romero, who passed away earlier this year, um, and Wes Craven, uh, who passed away last year or a year and a half ago. So the some great visionaries of this genre unfortunately have left us uh, have left us to to go to the uh, the haunted house in the sky and um, for anyone that is as listening that is close to Toby Hooper um, 
my condolences. His work will will continue on um, after his passing. And in one way that it will live on, uh, speaking of Salem's Lot, uh, if you listened to my interview with uh, Josh Brucker, who has acquired the rights to One for the Road, uh, you'll know that Toby Hooper's adaptation of Salem's Lot was a huge influence on him, and he embraces it wholeheartedly. It's something that, that he um, is using as a basis for his adaptation of the pseudo-sequel to Salem's Lot, One for the Road. And if you are more interested in One for the Road, I would certainly have you check out the interview with Josh um, from earlier this summer. Um... And then you can head on over to OneForTheRoad2018.com. Now, I in previous episodes, I had plugged another website for crowdfunding to make this movie happen. Um, Josh has since moved it over to OneForTheRoad2018. You'll be able to see all of your options and be able to, to donate what you're comfortable to help the this zomb- um, sorry this vampire movie live on. So why don't you head on over to OneForTheRoad2018 for more information. Um, uh, regarding this, what will be a, I'm sure to be a, a fantastic adaptation of Stephen King's very thrilling and very effective short story, again, found in the pages of Night Shift. Also, guys, if you haven't done so already, pick up your Stephen King swag at ka-tet19.net. Um, Matt Collect over there does an incredible job, and uh, if you just scroll through his Instagram page or his Twitter feed or go to ka-tet19.net, you will find a shirt that you will be proud to rock while walking down the street. Um, I just placed another order uh, not too long ago, uh, just a couple days ago, actually, and I cannot wait for my Gilead Gunslingers and my OI t-shirt to arrive in the mail. I'm very excited about it. Uh, not a you know, basically I'm wearing a Stephen King t-shirt every single day, and that was what my summer has been, and uh, ka-tet19.net sort of defined my summer because I was able to to wear Stephen King, um, Stephen, Queen, uh, Stephen King merchandise every day this summer pretty much, um, all because of the, the good work that, that Matt is doing over there. So head on over there if you haven't done so already. Okay, guys, um, up next, what I'm going to do, I'm going to share a, um, an iTunes review uh, because I just can't, I can't do this without you. Um, and if you have a few minutes on your hand, feel free to head on over to, to iTunes to leave me a review because, like I said, it, it just really helps me out. It helps keep the Stephen King cast towards the, the top of the search engine, um, and especially with it coming out in a couple weeks when people do type in Stephen King or it. Um, I would like for the Stephen King cast to, to definitely pop up there. So I want to thank everyone who has left a review. Um, first up, we have uh, Paratrooper1775, who writes, I'm a fan of SK, and I've been listening to this podcast for a while. I picked up my first SK book, Night Shift, in 1986 when I was in sixth grade, and I've enjoyed most of his work since then. I have tickets to go see SK for the first time in Will- Milwaukee. And just so you guys know, every time I see Milwaukee, I always want to say Milwaukee. Um, see if you guys can get the reference to that, uh, with his son and I am pumped. Uh, the host is full of information and it is interesting to listen to his thoughts on the stories and movies. I started with the podcast on my favorite story, Salem's Lot, and moved around from there. Thank you for your hard work. I can tell you put a lot of time and effort into each episode. So Paratrooper1775, thank you for writing in. And it's very fitting that, uh, Salem's Lot is your favorite, um, 
your favorite story as I'm reading it on, on the episode that I'm dedicating to, to Toby Hooper. And up next we have one of my favorite podcasts uh, by Calvin who writes, I'm truly amazed by the dedication of this podcast and its host, Constant Reader. Despite my love of SK and having read close to 20 of his novels, I'm still amazed by the level of dedication this podcast gives to the entirety of Stephen King's bibliography. Constant Reader is a true fan and one who discovers things I never would have. He's also very friendly. I've emailed the show three different times and had each email read on the air. Keep up the good work, and thank you for creating a welcome atmosphere for all of the fans. So, Calvin, thank you for, for writing in, and Paratrooper, thank you for writing in. And like I said, guys, if you haven't done so already, head on over to iTunes, because uh, it would really help me out. Up next, um, Calvin had mentioned email, so I think that's a great segue into, into this. So we have, um, first up, we, we have Kurt, who writes... Hello, Constant Reader. First off, I'd like to say how much I enjoy your podcast and overall critical analysis and appreciation of the works of Stephen King. So glad that you are back on a weekly basis. Also, thank you for your plug of Cotet19.net. I recently purchased the Man in Black Fled tea, which I felt was a, beat, a bit steep in price. That is until it arrived and was pleasantly surprised by not only the perfect-fitting, high-quality shirt, but also a Ka Insignia canvas tote bag, as well as a beautifully decorated Dark Tower bookmark. Currently reading Wind Through the Keyhole with the new bookmark tucked perfectly in at my progress page. And I really should have mentioned this before. Yeah, I mean, Matt isn't just going to give you your shirt. He's also going to to just thank you for shopping with him. Uh, his, his, his bookmarks are awesome, and you might get a... A canvas tote bag to boot too, so it, it it's really worth your time and money to to head on over to cotet19.net. My exposure to Stephen King came as early as elementary school when I saw Pet Cemetery Carrie and it all in the same summer along with my twin brother Chris. Some older cousins of mine were always being sat by our grandparents that summer, and whatever network it must have been running, a Stephen King marathon at the time. Needless to say, I found myself transfixed and terrified by the eerie tales. I was about seven years old at the time and felt a sense of courage and pride to endure the King adaptations. Chris and myself were immediately hooked, and once discovering these films were all adaptations and not just screenplays, we went down uh, to the public library and browsed the fiction section fervently until we found last names beginning with K. My finger dragging across the bottom half of the spines on the shelf, it soon landed on a very large spine and froze. It. Just as you have expressed, it was the novel that first made the largest impression on you as a young reader, and I can say the same for myself and for my brother Chris as well. We checked out the novel that warm day in June in the mid-90s and let our imaginations and literary lives change forever. Although we never did finish it that summer, this was due to the fact that our parents discovered we weren't sleeping much because of the novel, and we had stacked up a pretty hefty late fee after several weeks. Though we were first to retort Although we were forced to return it, we found ourselves in the library fiction section all throughout that summer browsing over the various titles Stephen King had released. We both eventually read it, though, separately, and years later when we were high school students, and it still remains our favorite Stephen King novel. That being said, my first King novel I actually finished was in my freshman year when I read The Gunslinger. I would go on to read numerous other King novels, but the time I strayed from the path of the beam during my high school experience was to read The Shining and the Regulars between reading The Wastelands and Wizard in Glass. Some of my very best friends I made in high school were made through our mutual respect and love of the works of Stephen King. I listened to all of your episodes pertaining to the King novels I finished, 
and can't help but feel that when I listen, I am reminded of those friends and the palaver we shared. Yet I digress. Thank you, Sai, for all that you do. Long days and pleasant nights. Blaine's a pain, and that is the truth. Best regards, Kurt. Kurt, thank you for, for writing in. Um, I'm glad to, to find a, a fellow IT fan out there who opened the, the door to, to Stephen King for, our, for, for all of us, for a lot of us. Um, and yeah, um, as I record this, it is August 27th. Uh, so not next Friday, but the following Friday, guys. That's, that's it. That's, that's when it's happening. Um, so speaking of it, uh, big news in the world of it. So as you know, this summer I have been uh, focused. I Earlier this summer I was focused on, on the Dark Tower and getting ready for the Dark Tower and mentally preparing myself for the Dark Tower. And there wasn't a lot of news being generated, which hadn't been anything new. I'm beating a dead horse at this point. But uh, of course there was no critic screenings or what have you. That is not the case with it. Um, last night, and yesterday on Twitter, news started to break that critics have seen it, um, and some reports are saying it is one of the, the greatest Stephen King adaptations ever made. Um, it is funny. It is warm. It is truly scary. Um, some reports I've read, it says it's going to make you laugh in all the right ways, it's going to make you cry in all the right ways, and it's going to scare you legitimately, which really, at the end of the day, that's what you want out of it. Guys, I don't want to get my, my hopes up too much, because my hopes have been dashed this summer already, but this might be the real deal, and I will definitely let you know when I see my uh, when I go to see it. Um, so the weekend that it comes out, uh, make sure that you, you check your, your iTunes and Stitcher feeds uh, because I will definitely be releasing my thoughts on it as soon as I possibly can. And hopefully, fingers crossed, um, I respond to it more positively than I did The Dark Tower. So exciting stuff, exciting stuff, guys. Um, and just the, the, the publicity around it has uh, – New Line has, has been doing everything that uh, Sony did not do for The Dark Tower. It's been innovative. It's been having a, a traveling dairy tour bus for a virtual reality um, simulation that actually can go onto onto the their Facebook uh, page, and you can and you can do it yourself. Although of course you're not really in a virtual reality world. Um, they've been airing a lot of, of great TV spots, a lot of fun um, you know internet spots. The, the posters have been amazing. There's just there's just a lot of good work happening in in terms of the the, the publicity around it, and I cannot wait. Uh, for September 8th, I will be there. I will be excited. I will probably bring my my Pennywise figurine. I'll be wearing my Cotet19.net um, Losers Club T-shirt. Yeah, I'm gonna be that guy, and hopefully, I will laugh and cry and jump out of my seat and be deeply unsettled the the entire time through. So I am very very excited, and I will definitely share all of my thoughts with you when uh, when. Uh, when it comes out. Okay, guys. Uh, so what I'm going to be reviewing today is Cat's Eye, which, look, this is this is a big blind spot for me that, that I, have to, um, I have to acknowledge. What this came out in 1981 um, or in the early 80s, it is a – it has always existed in my life. I just never got around to watching it. I don't know why, um, but I – because it, it does have Quitters, Inc., 
and The Ledge, I wanted to, to review these stories because I, I reviewed them in between... Yeah, actually, no, I just reviewed both of them for the, the, the reread of, of Night Shift, um, Night Shift Part 2. So you can check out my thoughts on, on those stories. And yeah, I wanted to, to see what the adaptations look like. Um, I didn't understand how much fun I was going to have with Cat's Eye. Um, I really didn't. This I, I didn't really have much expectations heading into it, uh, and I by the end of it, I had a big smile on my face that there was a, a little hidden gem out there all this long that I, I just had been very dismissive of and never got around to watching it. So maybe some of you might actually have seen the title of this of this episode, said Cat's Eye, and you, if you're listening, then clearly I'm not. This isn't pertaining to you, but I imagine that many of many people out there saw the title Cat's Eye and said, eh, I'm not going to listen to that episode. But for those of you who are listening that didn't never actually see Cat's Eye because it's not an adaptation of, of one of his great works or because maybe you're just not into anthology movies, um, please do yourself a favor. Uh, it just came out last year on, on Blu-ray. And uh, it's, it's worth it. Uh, so guys, do yourself a favor. And, and if you haven't done so, Check it out. Check out. Uh, check out Cat's Eye. It's it's a good time. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary, um, which will include the just the summary of each of the three uh, vignettes within, and then I'll get to my review of each of the the three vignettes after the the Wikipedia summary. So. A stray Tom Tabby Cat is chased by a dog and nearly gets run down by a car. He hides from the dog in a delivery truck, which drives to New York City. The tomcat hears the disembodied voice of a young girl pleading for help because something is threatening her. The cat is then captured by an employee of Quitters, Inc. Quitters, Inc. Smoker Dick Morrison is advised by a friend to join Quitters, Inc. to kick his habit. Clinic counselor Donnie Vinnie Donati explains that the clinic has a 100% success rate due to a uniquely persuasive method. Every time Dick smokes a cigarette, horrors of increasing magnitude will befall his wife and child. Using the tomcat that Donati's assistant, Junk, has caught in the street, Donati demonstrates the first of these horrors. The cat is locked in a cage and tormented with electric shocks. Donati explains that if his new client should be caught with a cigarette, Dick's wife, Cindy, will be subjected to the same shocks while he is forced to watch. For subsequent infractions, his young daughter, afflicted with Down syndrome, will be subjected to the shocks, then his wife raped, then after the fourth infraction, they give up. Not long to worry them, Dick hides the looming threat from his family. That night, Dick is angered by the methods Quitters uses and notices a pack of cigarettes in his desk. He prepares to smoke one, but notices a pair of feet in his closet, realizing that Quitters, Inc. is, in, is serious about their threat to ensure that he is not smoking. The following day, Dick visits his daughter and gives her a doll. Donati is also at the school, warning Dick that if he strays, the only thing his daughter would understand is that someone is hurting her because her father misbehaved. During a stressful traffic jam, Dick loses his will and smokes after finding an old forgotten pack of cigarettes in his glove box, not realizing that he is being watched by junk in a nearby car. After watching Cindy suffer in the electric cage, an enraged Dick attacks Donati and junk, allowing the Tomcat to escape in the scuffle. After regaining the upper hand, Donati says he understands and forgives Dick. Dick is determined to never smoke again and tells his wife everything, after which they embrace. Time passes, and Dick is apparently smoke-free at last, 
but has put on a little weight as a result of quitting. Dr. Donati describes, uh, prescribes diet pills and sets a target weight for Dick. Dick jokingly asks what will happen if he continues to gain weight, whether a man would attack his house with a flamethrower. Donati chuckles and says that's not what they have in mind. Instead, someone will cut off his wife's pinky finger. Later, Dick and his wife have a dinner party with one of the friends who recommended Quitters, Inc., and they toast the company for a job well done. As she raises her glass, Dick discovers Donati was not joking around. His friend's wife is missing her little finger. The Ledge The Tomcat, having escaped Quitters, Inc. and left Manhattan via the Staten Island Ferry, briefly befriends a group of vagrants and travels to Atlantic City, New Jersey, where it hears the same disembodied girl's voice asking for his help. Meanwhile, gambler and former tennis pro Johnny Norris is involved with a woman whose jealous husband, Cressner, is a crime boss and casino owner. Cressner, who will bet on anything, wins a wager that the cat will successfully cross the busy road outside his casino. He takes the tomcat home. Cressner has Norris kidnapped. As revenge, Cressner blackmails Norris into a dangerous ordeal. He must circumnavigate the narrow exterior ledge of Cressner's penthouse apartment in the skyscraper. If he can make it all the way around, Cressner will grant his wife a divorce. If Norris refuses, Cressner will call the police and have him arrested for possession of drugs, which have been planted in Norris's Mustang by a henchman named Albert. Norris agrees. Cressner harasses Norris by startling him with a horn and turning on a fire hose at the halfway point to keep Norris from lingering. A, por a pigeon lands beside Norris and pecks at his foot to the point of causing it to bleed. Despite these distractions, and a moment alone hanging from a dislodged neon sign, Norris makes it back to the apartment. Cressner says he honors his bet. The drugs have been removed. Norris can have a bag full of cash and his wife, as evidenced by her severed head. Norris springs upon Cressner while Aber Albert is tripped by the cat and drops his gun. Norris uses the gun to shoot Ducky and points it at Cressner. Norris forces Cressner to undergo the same ordeal on the ledge. The tomcat watches as Cressner loses the balance and falls to his death. General. The Tomcat hops a freight train and travels to Wilmington, North Carolina, where it's adopted by a little girl, Amanda, who names him General. The cat runs afoul of the girl's mother, who believes he will harm their parakeet, Polly. Despite Amanda's protests, the mother puts General out at night. As a consequence, he is unable to protect Amanda from a small, malevolent troll that he witnessed taking up residence in the house. When Amanda sleeps, the troll emerges via a retractable hole in one of the walls in Amanda's room. The troll slays the parakeet with a tiny dagger and then tries to steal Amanda's breath. General finds a way into the house and battles the troll. After wounding the cat's shoulder successfully with his dagger, the troll quickly finds itself outmatched by an enraged general. It successfully flees, leaving Amanda and her parents to discover the death of the bird. The parents are convinced that General killed Polly, but the father discovers a wound on a tomcat too large to have been caused by the parakeet. He starts to doubt the mother's belief that General slew the bird. General is then taken to an animal shelter by the mother to be euthanized the next day. When night falls, the troll returns and uses a small rubber bookshelf to wedge the child's room door shut from the inside. Again, it attempts to take the sleeping girl's breath. Meanwhile, at the animal shelter, General manages to escape when his last meal is brought. He rushes back to Amanda's house, which he enters by way of the chimney. General arrives in the nick of time to save Amanda, and again battles the troll, causing a great deal of noise. Knowing that he is no match for the cat, the small creature tries to flee. 
but General cuts off the troll's escape by knocking down a thick hardcover storybook covering the whole wall. The wall hole. Grabbing onto a bunch of foil balloons, the troll tries to float out of the furious cat's reach, landing on Amanda's record player. The quick-witted Tomcat then uses the record player to hurl the troll into a fan box, slicing it to bits. The ruckus awakens Amanda's parents, who are initially prevented by the blocked door from reaching her. Once they break into her room, the girl explains to them that General saved her from the troll. The parents are at first unwilling to believe the story until parts of the troll's dismembered corpse are discovered, as well as the tiny dagger that had caused General's wounds. Amanda uses the justification that General will keep her safe in case others like her first assailant appear, and General is allowed to stay inside the night to act as a protector for Amanda. So my review. What a weird concept, just to start off with. I mean, it's like the, the Stephen King version of Milo and Otis. To have a cat as the main character and to have all these stories revolve around it, it it's definitely an odd choice. And it's just so wacky, you, you have to love it. In fact, um, the entire time I, I watched this, I just pretended that this cat, General, uh, winds up joining the police force at some point and eventually becomes Clovis, the attack cat from Sleepwalkers. In my mind, that's the truth, and it made it even more fun than it actually was. Now, ever since watching Sleepwalkers, which you can find my review here at the Stephen King cast, I, I just always wanted to know what Clovis' backstory was. Now I know it! And I know that it begins with Clovis running away from fucking Cujo. That is an insane way for me to start this movie. Now, I know that this has existed. Like I said, this has existed since uh, since the 80s, the early 80s. And it's it's remained, like I said, a just a Stephen King blind spot uh, for the entirety of my existence on Keystone Earth. And I'm pretty familiar with the goings-on of pop culture subjects you know, that fall into my area of interest. So I would have assumed at some point that I would have heard about a Cujo's cameo in Cat's Eye. And that was just something that I completely missed. Uh, it was a pleasant surprise for me when I put this movie on. And, you know, knowing that Louis Teague had just filmed Cujo, uh, Louis Teague is the director of this movie, he had filmed Cujo before, it just makes perfect sense. So it's a nice nod to his previous movie, and it's a wonderful Easter egg for King fans. Um, and, you know, fans of Cujo, you know, you, you might know that he also pops up in... Uh, in, in the Dark Tower movie, um, if you saw it. Those 19 of you that actually went out and saw it. And then Christine shows up. I mean, like, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching here. It's just so much fun. These are just such great shout-outs to, to, King, to King movies. Anyway, uh, Clovis escapes onto a truck bound for New York. And once in New York, uh, you know, he begins to hear uh, the sounds of Drew Barrymore calling for help. Now, this is going to sound weird, and it might sound like I'm being, you know, kind of like a, just a wise-ass, but I'm not. I mean, but th there's actually some really good cat acting on display. Uh, Clovis, I know he's the general, but I'm just going to call him Clovis. Clovis is, you know, he's really cute, he's really emotive, and he's both vulnerable in New York and empathetic as he reaches for the, the ghostly form of, of Drew Barrymore. I don't know who his handler was, but, you know, did a phenomenal job uh, working with this cat. So he's abducted right away by one of the employees of Quitters, Inc. and is taken into the building, quickly followed by James Wood, James Woods. While in Quitters, Inc., uh, where the logo looks great, by the way, um, with the Q looking like the, uh, the, the Ghostbuster symbol, except for a ghost, it's a cigarette, uh, King and Teague build the suspense and mystery with a man crying on the couch in the waiting room. Woods sells the bizarre nature of this moment as he stares at the man, 
cigarette dangling from his lip, unsure of himself and sure what to do. Just then, a woman is escorted into the waiting room, limping, disheveled, crying. The man rushes to her, and she begins beating him with her purse. It's surreal. It's an incredibly off-putting way to begin with this segment. There's a menace and an uncertainty to proceedings that keep James Woods and us on edge. Woods is then brought into the darkened office by a toothy Alan King. After a moment or two of conversation, he then unexpectedly just pummels James Woods' cigarettes. Like, he completely hulks out. And as soon as he destroys the cigarettes, he's back to smiles and pleasantries. It is very Lynchian. It's very off-putting. It's very, very strange. He then presses a button revealing an electrified room with Clovis. It's a scene that's hard to watch. Now, I, I wonder how they filmed this scene without actually zapping the cat actor. I wouldn't be surprised if PETA would have a, um, an issue with it nowadays. But regardless, it's still a weird scene, especially because a like Muzak cover of Twist and Shout is playing as, as the cat is electrocuted. James Wood goes home, pops on the dead zone, and begins suffering from nicotine withdrawal. As the night grows stormy, he can't sleep. He sneaks downstairs to smoke a butt. Armed with a cigarette in the mouth and an umbrella in one hand, he investigates a noise from the closet. And the lightning crashes outside. He proceeds to pummel a golf bag. And as he throws the umbrella in the closet, he hears a grunt. Now, it's an effective one-two punch. It's goofy, but still a little spooky. It's spooky, weird fun. The next morning, James Wood spots a heavyset man a goonish mob guy looking, um, you know, just like running back and forth in front of his house, wearing wearing loafers instead of running shoes. Again, like, all of this is adding up to a very strangely off-putting story. Little details like this are turning this story into a bad dream, and the effectiveness of this story comes from the fact that there's a helplessness to Wood's situation. You know, he has to surrender to a new world of dream logic. There's a confrontation between Woods and Alan King outside Woods' daughter's school, the daughter played by Drew Barrymore. Later, at a party, King and Teague double down on the surreality of the dream logic, and an over-the-top sequence in which Woods spots cigarettes everywhere, culminating with an Alan King descending the stairs dressed as Space Elvis, lip-syncing to a cover of I'll Be Watching You. I'm all for weird, but this this here, this was a bit much. It's, it's goofy tone, just undermines the, the growing tension of Wood's struggle with quitting the cigarettes. Then, in a traffic jam, he looks around, believes that he's free and clear, and surreptitiously begins to smoke a butt. Unfortunately, he's spotted. He races home to find his wife missing, signs of a struggle in his home. At Quitter's Inc., there's a struggle, and Clovis the Attack Cat escapes. James Wood's wife is locked in the cage, and he's forced to watch her dance as the floor is electrocuted um, to 96 tears. The segment ends at a dinner party with Woods discovering the host's missing finger, meaning her husband had not met the Quitter's Inc. conditions. It's not the best ending, but it doesn't detract from what was a pretty funny first segment. I, I really enjoyed it. Then, with Clovis on the loose, he continues to hear the voice of Drew Barrymore who is taking on multiple roles within the movie, and she tells Clovis that it is coming for her, so the threat, though still vague, is starting to reveal itself. Clovis is very nearly run over in the street. Watching him dodge the vehicles, it's a hard scene to watch. Um, his peril is observed on and bet on by Kressner, the mob boss. We then meet Kressner's wife and lover, played by Ted Stryker himself, Robert Hayes. Guys, uh, 
One thing that you need to know about me, I grew up, um, and I think I actually talked about this in, uh, in Creepshow, um, something to tide you over, uh, starred Leslie Nielsen, who is the star of not just the Naked Gun movies, and Naked Gun was a movie that I absorbed, it was one of those movies that I just rented um, almost like every day from the, at least once a week, I would say from, from the movie store. And another movie that I rented all the time was Airplane, uh, also starring, uh, Leslie Nielsen. And, uh, in Airplane, uh, it, the, the star of the movie was Robert Hayes, who played a, <laughs> a haunted pilot, uh, Ted Stryker. So when he shows up here, it just brings on so many connotations of just happiness and joys of my youth and what remains still one of the funniest movies ever made. Anyway, after the wife seemingly manages to escape safely, Hayes is abducted by Kresner's goons. There's an effective shot where Hayes is looking up at the chauffeur who is helping to beat him up and over the, the chauffeur's shoulder is a shot of the building around whose ledge Hayes will soon have to navigate. From there, Kressner gives Stryker the ultimatum uh, to make his walk around the ledge. Now, as you know, I was a fan of the short story, but actually seeing how narrow that ledge is and how high up he is, it really sells the stakes. Now, smartly, King and Teague included a billboard display um, outside of the building to, to show um, the, the, the time passing, so you really get to see how long Stryker is out on the ledge for. And then he makes his way across the ledge with increasingly, with increasing difficulty as obstacles are thrown at him. He's constantly surprised by Kressner. He falls off one ledge. He has to climb back up. He's attacked by a pigeon, has a hose sprayed at him. He nearly falls off when the neon he's climbing snaps off the building. But he makes it back into the building, but is quickly double-crossed by Kressner. There's a struggle. Clovis escapes and Stryker. Enraged upon hearing that his lover has been murdered, forces Kressner to make the walk along the ledge. Clovis then makes his way to the country, and we get Trollovision as the troll stalks Drew Barrymore. The troll is in the walls, and in a creepy scene, we hear it grunting and groaning and breaking through the plaster. It's a fairy tale little monster, a mischievous little imp making gremlin noises, garbed in Harley Quinn headdress. It eats the parakeet and stalks Drew Barrymore. Even though the thing is half the size of a kitten, there's a legit threat to it. Because so much of this feels like a fairy tale. And plus, I gotta say, uh, the, the practical visual effects on the thing look great. It tries to steal Drew Barrymore's breath, but it's interrupted by Clovis, who saves her life. But is stabbed by the creature. Unfortunately, the brouhaha knocks over the, the, the broken birdcage, and though Drew Barrymore tells her parents that the monster in the wall killed Polly, the parents are now certain that's a result of the cat. Even though his wife doesn't believe her daughter's story, the husband does, especially when he spots the knife wound on Clovis. Drew's mother traps Clovis and takes him to a kill shelter. As the rain pours down that night, the troll returns to Drew's bedroom. Elsewhere, Clovis bides his time until he can rescue her, he spots his opportunity and makes a break for it. He heroically runs through the rain to get back to her and engages in a truly epic showdown with the little monster. It's a fun, well-executed fight between the two that, watching it for the first time, uh, to me, it recontextualized uh, re the final battle in Ant-Man. Uh, it, it staged very similarly you know, with the, the everyday objects in a little girl's room becoming life-or-death props in a battle of good versus evil. 
The troll hides out in a marble jar. It tries to escape by holding onto a balloon string. It jumps up on a record player. And when Drew commands the cat to spin the record faster, it sends the troll right into the box fan, shredding the creature to pieces. And the movie ends soon after that. And it's just, man, like I said, you know, I mean, it's a short review. There's not much to say. Uh, I mean, I, I like the effects. I like the tone of all three of these these vignettes. I think they're they're very well done uh, and very well executed adaptations of of King's short stories. Um, Cat's Eye was not included in 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 uh, Night Shift or any publication that had uh, occurred yet, um, but Quitters Inc. and The Ledge were included in Night Shift, and and both are are very well realized adaptations of the short stories and cat's eye is just fun it's just fun and i just as i've you know said before on the podcast in various episodes in a, in a world of of uh oh you know cgi and uh and and effects of that ilk i'm just whenever i see a uh practical effects on display i i I just respond uh, that much more positively. And knowing that all this time, like I said, with Cat's Eye, Cat's Eye itself was a blind spot. But to know that within Cat's Eye, there was a a great little villain with this troll who doesn't have a name that I wish had a name. Um, I just really like the look of this thing. I like the, the personality of this thing. It really fits well in that, that small monsters terrorizing um, the everyday little subgenre of horror that... You know, we, we saw with gremlins and critters and ghoulies um, and munchies. Am I getting that right? Was that one of them? But anyway, th- this is, is sort of King's own little stamp on that. And of course, this little guy, it has so much personality. And the fact that we don't get his backstory, but you can tell that he's there's a little door in the wall. There's a little thinny. Um, or something where he is he is pushing through where there is uh, where the, the the fabric between two worlds is thin and it is not hard to imagine that his his place of residence really is is midworld or maybe even the territories um, but I really like his his fairy tale like presence um, and I, I would love to see King take on this character or characters of of that like. Um, in other, uh, in in other works, and spoiler alert for Needful Things. When uh, um, Alan Pangborn confronts Leland Gaunt, we see him to be a a shriveled, shrunken little elf, impish creature, um, which not as small as this, but it it sort of brought that uh, it brought that into my mind. So I wonder if he is. You know, much in the way that a lot of people always sort of draw lines of connection between all of the different spider creatures in, in King's works, you know, whether it be Mordred Pennywise or the library policeman Pennywise or, or what have you. Um, uh, here, I whenever I whenever I see some sort of uh, devilish or impish figure, I always draw a line to, to, to Leland Gaunt and wonder if there's if they're, if they're you know, of the same family tree. But uh, speaking of which, let's let's get to our Easter eggs here. So we, we this this had a lot of fun Easter eggs. The first of which, like I said, there was Cujo. Um, Cujo makes an appearance, and then he is the inciting incident, really chasing Clovis. You know, 
um, onto his journey. And then we have Christine. Christine shows up. Drew Barrymore, of course. Drew Barrymore, um, who appeared in, in Firestarter, is the star here. The Dead Zone. At one point, James Woods is watching The Dead Zone, which was a lot of fun. And then uh, Pet Cemetery. also. Uh, Drew Barrymore's mother in the movie is reading Pet Cemetery. And if there were others, I, I didn't see them. Um, but if you know of any other Easter eggs, feel free to write in at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. And then we have Stephen Kingism. Stephen Kingisms are the tricks and traits and tropes uh, that, that we see again and again in King's works, uh, the first of which is cats. Um, you know, whether it be the cat from hell or sleepwalkers, um, we have seen, we have definitely seen cats um, fight, uh, fight off um, uh, evil creatures, or actually the cat from hell is an evil creature. Um, but, uh, but, the general, aka Clovis here, functions very similarly to the cats and sleepwalkers, um, as it's the the natural enemy of a supernatural creature, kind of like how uh, Billy Bumblers are natural predators to the the, the little doctors, um, as is revealed in in the Dark Tower. And then we have a white-haired, red-cloaked man on the balcony of a tower. Um, it's a very specific image, and um, I'll read it one more time. A white-haired, red-cloaked man on the balcony of a tower. I'm not going to spoil that for anyone, but Kressner is draped in a red robe peering down from a balcony of his tower. This is not the only time we're going to see this image in a Stephen King story. And then we have supernatural creatures sucking the life force through a person's mouth. Again, we see that in, in Sleepwalkers, so I think there's a, a direct... Um, echoes of this movie and um and sleepwalkers um all right guys that's that's all i have for this week um not even an hour but you know sometimes sometimes uh you know it's good to have a, a short episode out there uh for a short commute and a, a short listen um so thanks everyone for for listening like i said head on you know just go go head on head on over to on demand or, or best buy or whatever and and just Rent it, buy it, whatever. I mean, Cat's Eye is, it's fun. It's fun. Um, it's a fun celebration of, of Stephen King. And if you haven't done so already, head on over to iTunes, leave a review. It would really help me out. And uh, share any and all of your thoughts about Stephen King, any Stephen King property, um, your lamentations of the Dark Tower movie, and your expectations, hopes, and fears of, of the upcoming it adaptation. And uh, I should say, I, I should have said this earlier, but uh, but big news, you know, and, and talk about adaptations. Um, it was just announced last week that Scott Glenn, the legendary actor Scott Glenn, uh, who has just been killing it lately on Daredevil and The Defenders and The Leftovers, he just crushed it on The Leftovers, will be joining... Uh, and we'll be heading to the small town of Castle Rock playing the legendary Stephen King character, Alan Pangborn. Now, guys, longtime listeners of the show will know that I believe that King missed an opportunity to, to create a, um, you know, his own version of, uh, you know, Jack Reacher or Repairman Jack or um, Agent Pendergast or Charlie Parker or who have you. But uh, he had an opportunity there to, to, I would love to have seen the adventures of Alan Pangborn or the mysteries of Alan Pangborn and these supernatural occurrences keep uh, happening in Castle Rock and Alan Pangborn, the sheriff, has to investigate them and solve the crime and stop the supernatural evil. I've said before that Alan Pangborn is is clearly an agent of the white. Um, 
I, I was disheartened to see, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for the Dark Tower, spoiler alert, I was disheartened to see that he never met up with the Cotet. I'm glad that he winds up having a, um, spoiler alert for the Needful Things, he has a happy life with Polly upon the conclusion of the final Castle Rock story, Needful Things, but at the same time I feel that um, there are a couple characters in Stephen King's works, um, Jack Sawyer, is one of them, and Alan Pangborn is another that I really wish had met up with our gang, um, our, our Cotet, because I believe that he would have been a resource to them. And But even though he won't be uh, meeting up with the Cotet, uh, he will be showing up in the town uh, that he he had protected for, for a while. So I don't know what this means. You know, Scott Glenn's an older guy, um, so he's he's past retirement age. Um, so I doubt that he will be the, the current sheriff, but I wonder if this is just following um, the, the, the chronology of the, the timeline of, of Castle Rock, where he had been the, the, the sheriff, or I don't know if it's... Yeah, I, we don't know what Castle Rock is going to be, if all of the Castle Rock stories have occurred and we're going to get new Castle Rock stories, or if it's going to sort of cherry-pick um, parts of the history to create a, a new timeline um, in this adaptation that might be working its way towards what could be the final boss, so to speak, or the final big bad, which of course comes to mind, Needful, um, Leland Gaunt and Needful Things. That seems to be, if there were to be a series... Um, keeping the, the arrival of, of Leland Gaunt to, uh, to come in at the very end to be the, the big bad certainly makes sense. Um, so if that's the case, I don't know what this means for Alan Pangborn, who um, clearly is, is older now um, and, and probably has not faced off against uh, Leland Gaunt yet in, this, in, in the world of Castle Rock, the adaptation. Who knows? But we don't know anything other than casting. Um, about about Castle Rock, but this is an adaptation that I am very excited about. I cannot wait for, for Castle Rock. I can't wait for the next trailer to hit, the next info dump for us to get about it. Um, so fingers crossed about Castle Rock, guys. This is this is really good stuff, and like I keep on saying, this is a fantastic time to be a Stephen King fan. So um, so everyone, uh, next week I'll be back uh, with a brand new episode of the Stephen King Cast and. May you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast.